Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. A new book called Crying the News offers an in-depth history of America's newsboys in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. This workforce of children and teenagers sold newspapers on city streets, on moving trains, in frontier towns, and even on Civil War battlefields, and they helped to build the American newspaper industry. I'm Beth Harpaz, editor of a website at the City University of New York called SUM, sum.cuny.edu. And today I'm talking to Professor Vincent D. Girolamo, author of Crying the News, who teaches history at Baruch College. This podcast is hosted by the Gotham Center for New York City History in partnership with New Books Network. Welcome, Professor D. Girolamo. Thank you. Let's start with the logistics of being a newsboy. How did it work exactly? Why was it such a critical link between newspapers and the reading public? I'm, I'm thinking that a lot of our listeners uh, grew up either buying a newspaper on the corner every day or having it delivered to their houses. We don't do that anymore now that we read newspapers online. But decades before home delivery and a newspaper box on every corner, there were these newsboys. So tell us, how did they do their jobs? Right. Well, newsboys were essential to getting the paper from the press to the people, right? That doesn't happen automatically. And uh, my book actually starts in the 1830s uh, and, and goes to the 1930s. And throughout those decades, the ch- there were children were abundant in society, and they were particularly abundant in uh, immigrant urban wards, and they were a, a, a labor source that, that the newspapers tapped. Uh, uh, they did not have to pay them uh, uh, wages, so they could just rely on the boys to buy some papers at a cut rate, half price often, and, and then just uh, hustle them as they would. So that was one method. Another method was to get uh, carriers and to, uh, uh, to get uh, adults and children did this work in various times and places. Um, but the children would go to the newspaper office or, or a, a distribution depot and, and get their papers to put up a few coins. They would get credit. Uh, and so they wouldn't have to have any startup money. Um, and so from there, they would go to uh, a, a certain corner that they had rights to, that they were accustomed to being at, or they would just circulate through the city. They do a combination of delivery or and selling. Um, and these uh, these areas, these routes, these corners, it became kind of a, a not a black market, but a kind of an underground market, real estate market. These corners and these routes were bought and sold for hundreds of dollars. Wow. So it was uh, often just within the, the 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 newsboys themselves among them. Sometimes in Baltimore, for example, the newspapers wanted to be on top of. Uh, who was the who operated that corner? Who who was in charge of that route? So there was a lot of variation from city to city, from state to state, but it was casual uh, labor in that in that people would come and go. Let's let's talk about the reality of what their lives were like. Aside from you know, in the pre dawn hours, they're going to go to the to the printing plant or the newspaper office, pick up the papers, and then go out and, and hustle them, market them. 
um, and literally cry out the news, right? Like announce the headlines, sometimes embellish the headlines. And this was kind of a competitive thing where they're trying to sell more papers than, you know, a kid across the street or down the block or whatever. The, the kind of the fabric of the rest of their lives. I mean, so many of these kids were, uh, they were like as young as five, right? Mm-hmm. And there were thousands of them. Uh, what led them to become newsboys? Uh, what were their circumstances like? Where did they live? How, how, did, how did they live? Mm-hmm. Well, I have one uh, boy named Johnny Morrow. He was, he's unique in that he, he wrote a memoir in 1860 about growing up on the streets. And he said that, that hunger was the, was the uh, animating force of his, of his trade. So you're, you're trying to sell papers. You're trying to earn money for food. Uh, and, and so uh, his parents, his, uh, his father would send him out and rely on the customers to feed them, rely on his own earnings to feed him. So that, that dire want uh, uh, individually and among the family is really what drove uh, newsboys, drove children to, to take up uh, selling papers. And they would sell papers, but they would shine shoes. They would uh, hustle, uh, go after hats that were blown in the in, in the wind. They would uh, shovel snow. They would do whatever was 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 possible. So it was kind of a, a, a very kind of a mixed sort of labor. Uh, but newspapers were most reliable. And there were there were dozens of newspapers in some cities and they had morning, they had afternoon, they had various editions. So you could usually find a, a a newspaper that that needed selling if you were a, a hungry kid. Um, your book looks at newspapers all over the country. I mean, they were literally on Civil War battlefields that were in Washington, D.C. They would board trains to sell papers. They went west with the westward migration into frontier towns. Um, but, you know, we're here partly representing the Gotham Center for New York City History. So let's talk a little bit about newsboys in New York. In, in what ways were their lives different uh, from newsboys in, in other places? I mean, New York's always been a media center. And, you know, we were obviously a huge center for immigrants. Um, how did that... Uh, affect the landscape for newsboys here? Yes. Well, New York is really the birthplace of the American newsboy. There were uh, children and adults who distributed papers in the colonial revolutionary period. Ben Franklin is one of the the major examples. But this was a a completely different sort of uh, uh, enterprise. So in 1833, with with the birth of the Penny Press, the New York Sun, it becomes uh, 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 more accepted for, for kids to sell on the streets. And so New York uh, really uh, set the pace in terms of the number of, of penny newspapers. It soon spread to Baltimore, soon spread to other cities. Um, but New York was also a, a, a port of entry for immigrants. And so you see uh, Irish dominating the, uh, the ranks of the newsboys in the 1840s, 1850s. Uh, and you see with each wave of immigration in the 1880s and, and 90s, you start to get more uh, Italians, more Jews. And so uh, really it is a, a, an entry level uh, uh, occupation and so the newest the newest comers sort of go to the gravitate these children gravitate to the uh, to the news trade and in some ways push out the group that came before them mm. so it's connected to the immigration history of New York uh, and to its center as a as a as a media center to its to its role there. Um, uh, what else? Just in terms of transportation and the, and the railroads, and and New York is also a mecca for other kids. So kids who are who are gravitating, who are searching for work, uh, they come to New York, and this is a this is a way when you're in a in a new city, 
where do you go? You go to the news alley. You can get you can make a you can get a, 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 a armload of papers. You can get a steak. You can find out where to sleep, where to where to get a cheap meal. The newspapers themselves had a ra- a restaurants, little cafes in their basements to keep these kids around and close. So when they had a new edition, when they had an extra, they would be uh, in the vicinity. There was a lot of competition, as you mentioned, and so there are other newspapers are vying for these kids. Um, uh, and, and they're also uh, cooperating amongst themselves. I see stories of them pooling their money, defending each other. Uh, so as, as as cutthroat as it could be, there is a lot of cooperation among these kids at certain times. You, you mentioned that the newspapers in some cases had cafes for them, and they also created these homes for newsboys. Uh, one of the big themes of your book that really struck me was uh, you know, these kids helped build the American newspaper industry. And, you know, you talk about uh, how uh, the wave of reformers um, against uh, child labor, uh, the newspaper industry just fought tooth and nail to hang on to newsboys as an institution. Um, talk a little bit about that. And, and, and also, let's talk a little bit about the, the newspapers actually created homes for newsboys Mm -hmm. to kind of defend themselves against this criticism that they were exploiting these kids who lived in dire poverty. They were homeless. They were hungry. They lived on the streets. They were vulnerable to child predators and other criminals. So let's talk about the newspaper's role here. Right. Well, I show newspapers to be sort of pioneers of of, uh, corporate welfare, of, of, (laughs) of, of, of sports programs, of, of banquets, of excursions. Uh, there's also newsboy schools and night classes. They're doing all of these things to, again, keep the boys near at hand, but also to stave off criticism. And so um, they didn't really uh, found the homes, although the New York Sun did give permission for, the, for a home to be, to be uh, instituted in its, in its upper uh, story, uh, which they couldn't rent anyway because the presses would rock the building. Um, <laughs> and so it was the Children's Aid Society that started the, the first newsboy home in New York, 1854. And then it started several others. And then other, uh, the Catholic Church, uh, the YMCA, various individual groups in various cities would start newsboy homes. And the newspapers, the publishers would support them and would and would uh, help endow them and uh, uh, and so, so but they weren't necessarily uh, starting the homes themselves but they were part and parcel they were always close to the the newspaper row or the, or the the location where the newspapers were so these these newspaper publishers and and circulation managers a new profession emerging in the in the uh, late nineteenth century. Um, they really did a lot to maintain these children's labor, their access to their labor, which was really unquestioned um, in the 1850s, 1870s. Uh, what the reformers did was to try to uh, uh, help them sell newspapers and, and help them get employment in, in that fashion. And that was the solution. Later in the, in the progressive era, a newspaper selling is seen as the problem, not the solution. We have to get them off the streets. We have to put them in schools, and uh, and so that yesterday's solution is is today's is today's social problem, and so the newspapers are are trying to navigate this transition, and they're defending themselves. What do you mean we're exploiting these kids? Look at all we're doing for them, and we're and forget about our philanthropy. We are giving them employment. That is the best philanthropy anybody can do. How dare you criticize us? And uh, and that 
that argument wins the day for a lot of a lot of years. But then around the 1890s, with the progressives, they start to uh, say, "No, you know, you you are exploiting them, and and whatever pittance they make is not does not justify their not going to school. They're being ruined for for disciplined labor, uh, more more stable labor." And so the newspapers uh, uh, defend themselves uh, in print. Uh, they have they they have editorials. They have cartoons. The advertisements that they run also show news newsboys in a in a glowing light. So the self-made man image is not something that just arises because people look at that. Oh yeah, these kids are really pulling themselves up. But it becomes something that's integral to their defense of their use of of these children's uh, labor. Um, and then, as we get into the uh, the 1930s, for example, there they uh, there are laws that are trying to, child labor laws are being passed uh, to try to uh, limit the, the the role of children in various industries. And the newspapers then take on the uh, argument that well, that's fine. Yes, we're for we're for the abolition of child labor, but this is not child labor. This is this is a, a training, an education. This is a form of service. This is a public service that they're providing, and it's good for them. It's good for society. We couldn't afford to distribute papers if we had to do it another way. And so they they uh, they are successful in winning uh, exemptions from child labor laws, uh, not just in defining it as not labor, but defining the children as not employees. They just buy from us and sell and, and keep their own hours and do what they want. So we're not exploiting them. We're not employing them. They're just, they're just uh, independent merchants. And that argument lasts and lasts and lasts. It's, it's, it's remarkable. And one of, the, one of the most interesting threads in your book is how, uh, you know, this, you call it the Horatio Alger myth, right? And for people who don't know, you know, kind of the derivation of that, Horatio Alger was a novelist and he wrote these rags to riches stories that, you know, uh, really were about the American dream, right? Like a, a poor kid, you know, with all these terrible circumstances in, in his life through hard work and determination can become a great success story. And the newspapers, uh, you know, glommed onto that, that, you know, that myth and aligned the newsboy story with that model. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, one of the things that you kind of, you don't struggle with it in the book, but you, you know, you, you give us both sides of, um, you know, you got all these prison wardens saying, you know, these newsboys are, the delinquents and the rogues out there. And, you know, two out of three people in my jail were newsboys. And then you've got the newspaper saying, well, but look at all these famous men who were newsboys. And you, you mentioned Ben Franklin. Tell us a few of the other famous names that, you know, started out as newsboys. Oh, there are so many uh, in the film industry. There's uh, Frank Capra. There's Walt Disney. Wow. Um, uh, in politics, there's Al Smith, our own uh, governor, governor of New York. Um, and uh, Herbert Hoover as well. There is a there is a Newsboys Hall of Fame that the that the Circulation Managers Association founded. Wow. I think in the sixties, nineteen sixties, and and they're 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 trying to uh, to make this case. Entertainers as well. Uh, 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 Jimmy Durante. Wow. Um, um, a lot of these immigrant yeah, kids. Yeah, I think the other a couple of my other favorites from realist Harry Houdini, the famous musician, a magician, and uh, Thomas Edison, the great inventor. But is this was is yes. this list? Does this list really uh, provide evidence that being a newsboy somehow 
put you on the road to success? Or is it just an indication of how ubiquitous this vocation was for boys and, and young men, you know, in this era? Right. Well, I think it's mainly the latter. It, it, it is uh, uh, one of the most common, if not the most common childhood occupation was to sell papers for however long. A lot of people did it. A lot of kids did it for a few weeks, a few months and said, there's nothing in this. I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm moving, moving on. on. <laughs> yes. Um, but, 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 you know, it was easy to trace somebody's uh, who made good their their background to being a newsboy. And so and so it was became part of their life story, became part of their obituary. Um, and so it became a, a, a narrative sort of trope to, right. to, you know, once was a newsboy. You know, they, they, right. they had that headline in many obituaries in the 1920s. Um, and so. Uh, you know, by the same token, I don't know if this is struggling with this idea, but children did work. Children did learn a certain amount of uh, uh, um, enterprise and 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 uh, uh, try to seize their opportunities, try to hustle, uh, have a you know a good head for for dollars and and and, uh, and figures and 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 developed kind of a you know. Uh, an acquisitive sort of uh, operator kind of uh, frame of mind where we need to make money. And so and so sometimes the news trade rewarded this as well as having a physical prowess to defend your corner and to and to uh, uh, to take on all comers. So um, so I'm not saying that that there's uh, nothing to the to the story that that kids can develop that it affected their character it affected their outlook it might have even affected their success but but it, it's it's it becomes just this trope when you try to single out this one uh, temporary childhood uh, activity as the key to their success right, right. how does that that only happens via Alger stories via newspaper features via uh, kind of a media machine which is seizing upon that one aspect of their young lives to to uh, explain their right. success, right, and and to and for the newspaper industry to kind of justify, you know, why this is a greater good for society that we have this vast workforce of children, yeah. 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 Um, you know, because it's good for them, mm-hmm. and it's good for all of us. And and one of the you know you you cite all these great stories that the newspaper industry itself did mm-hmm. on the phenomenon of you know oh let's look at all these famous men who were once newsboys. I think you and I had emailed about the book a little bit and it brought to mind, you know, I, I'm a baby boomer and in the 60s and 70s, every girl was a babysitter. You know, we babysat for a dollar an hour when we were 12 years old. We might have had four kids that we were taking care of till two in the morning. No cell phones that you could reach the parents if there was an emergency. Looking at that with 21st century eyes, you know, those parents would be like, child welfare would be knocking on the door right. saying, what are you kidding me? You left a 12 year old in charge of four kids till two in the morning and you're paying her a dollar an hour. But like probably every famous woman in America of a certain age mm-hmm. was a babysitter. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean mm-hmm. that babysitting puts you on the road to success. Right. right? My, my friend, colleague, Miriam uh, Foreman Brunel wrote a book on babysitters, which, which there you go. addressed this, this, this very question. I think what I conclude is that there's a thin line between opportunity and exploitation. Right. And so we see these children walking that line and man, some of them are just fall on the exploited side and, and, right. and they not only lose their school years and their educations, uh, but they lose their life. They lose their limbs. Right. They, they are vulnerable. Uh, Late at night, they're vulnerable, falling under under uh, the wheels of streetcars. Um, so there is there are real dangers uh, on the street, um, and so um, 
so that that is that is the reality as well yeah um another thing that you and i had talked about uh, before we we uh sat down to do the podcast was you know this is really your life's work um can you tell us a little bit about you know how when did you come up with this idea and um you know what what kind of led you to this topic Mm -hmm. Mm I th- I think I came to this topic from a variety of sort of personal reasons and sort of uh, scholarly questions that I wanted to, to answer. Uh, I had been a journalist, I'd worked for newspapers, and I had not seen uh, the newspaper treated as an employer, as a as a as an industry uh, that that utilizes uh, uh, children's labor in particular. So I, w- I was interested in that. Also, my father and his and his brothers are all they're all Depression era. Uh, kids and they hustled papers on on the streets of Boston and Monterey, mm-hmm. California, and so I grew up with their stories, and it seemed sort of romantic. It seemed sort of interesting, and they all became um, um, businessmen. They all opened little shops, little restaurant, a theater, and they were and bar, and they were squarely part of the working class. Yet they were not wage earners for most of their lives, and so I also wanted to look at the role of penny capitalism, of entrepreneurship within this working class milieu. If you all of a sudden, you know, become a, a small operator, do you, you therefore identify with the Andrew Carnegie's and the, and the, and the, uh, uh, the big businessmen of the, of society? Not really, especially when you or your family are, uh, your, your family are, are wage earners and your customers are wage earners. So I wanted to look at the role of entrepreneurship in the, uh, 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 in the working class, I also I think you know uh, women's history and gender history was the most exciting thing when I was going to school, and so I wanted to to look at at also the sort of socialization of kids and how this masculine work culture develops. What is it? What was the experience of girls in the trade? What was their role in the family economy? These were the sorts of questions that the historians I was reading uh, were asking about. And so I, I saw the newsboy as kind of a quintessential working class figure that I could get into these questions of gender, of, of uh, family economy, uh, masculinity, uh, as well as uh, the vices and the, the, the reality of, of living on the streets and, and hustling on the streets. And, and this was actually your dissertation topic, right? It was. It was. It was. Wow. So that was many years ago, and I did... I did seven chapters, seven thematic chapters about black kids, about girls, about uh, uh, reform efforts, and and so I I moved across time wherever I could find the sources, yeah. and there were huge gaps. And so uh, when I went to pu- to publish this, I got ah, it's not it's not ready, it's not it's not what I want, and I had to decide. Uh, rather late in the game that that chronology was my friend that I had to tell the story of this archetypal occupational group uh, uh, over time if it's this mythic figure then it's their experiences that is the same no matter no matter their ethnicity no matter the period no matter what and that that wasn't what I was finding so I needed to look at the 1830s look at the 50s look at the Civil War era my dissertation had uh, I don't know a paragraph or two on the Civil War I found two bits of two scraps of of, of information, and uh, the book has a you know a substantial chapter on yeah, that on the railroad boys, yeah, uh, all of these uh, things. And girls, I didn't do a chapter on girls. Yeah, I I threaded 
the role of girls throughout the period. They, they pop up in the 1850s, and I really address them uh, in a large degree in the, in the 1890s, but they're, they're a continuous part of the story. Yeah. So it was really involved a, a rethinking and a, and a sort of a leap of faith on the part of my, my uh, colleagues in, the, in, the, in the, my department and in the, in, in the college and sort of allowing me to keep working at this. Cool. And I feel like, you know, it's the beginning of a new school year. And this is, I think, very inspiring for, you know, people who are out there in academia and higher ed, you know, who have these ideas and, you know, just to, to inspire people to, you know, stick with it and, and you know, see it through to the end and, and see where it takes you, right? right? I think so. I hope so. I remember Sean Wilentz at Princeton, he had this little line, he goes, history is hard. <laughs> a three-line sentence, but but you know, in terms of just uh, gathering the information, and of course, I did start before uh, the before age you could Google digitization, yeah. and so that allowed me to fill some gaps. You could right. have newspapers that were word searchable. I thought oh, I have nothing on Chicago. That's the terrible thing. I have nothing on Los Angeles. I could I could really make this a national story, which started out as a New York story. Um, and uh, New York figures in, in most all the chapters, but but it becomes a national story because I was able to get evidence and documents from various places. Right, right. Any final, I don't know, takeaways or any favorite stories about news newsboys or anecdotes that you know that you love to to tell or share? Well, um, I guess one of the things that I that I developed when I was when I was finding these. Uh, uh, these little items was was these uh, funerals that the newsboys would bury each other. They, oh God! They how would, tragic! They would raise money to to get flowers, to get a cart, oh to, to dig to get the headstone, and so I just put those in a file and put those in a file, and I ended up having oh I don't know two dozen examples of newsboy funerals. Wow! And so uh, I did write an article on that and. Uh, it's not in the book as a set article, but but I talk about their developing kind of uh, occupational consciousness, their their sense of respectability, their sense of themselves as part of a trade, not just you know beggars who are annoying people. And so one way you can see that you can see what's in their mind, what kind of class consciousness they they develop. It, you know they write they write letters to the editor. Johnny Moore wrote a memoir, so they're written accounts. But in the rituals that they that they uh, developed uh, for each other, that you see also how they're asserting their pride of trade, their pride of class, and their their fear of a potter's field of being uh, having an unrespectable ending to wow. their lives. So that that's that's in there too. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a wonderful a wonderful anecdote that kind of sums up a lot about who who they saw themselves as, I think. All right, well, I've been speaking with Vincent D. Girolamo, a professor of history at Baruch College, which is part of the City University of New York, about his new book, Crying the News, A History of America's Newsboys. It's just out from Oxford University Press. Thank you, Professor D. Girolamo. Thank you. And I'm Beth Harpaz, editor of the CUNY website, SUM, sum.cuny.edu, signing off for the Gotham Center for New York City History and New Books Network. <laughs>